we have to. Here we are in these glamorous rehearsal yes, rooms. Of you, you really know you've made it when you arrive here, Corinne, <laughs> don't yeah, you? That's um, true. And uh, um, just for the sake of listeners, there, um, there's an, a fire door immediately outside which keeps banging as people go through, but that's life in the theatre. Exactly. It? it really is. So, um, Corinne, social networking has been generating a certain amount of buzz around this show. Yes. Um, and I saw a tweet from its leading lady <laughs> saying that she was squirrelling a mint into her bra <laughs> before oh, simply everyone leaving. Everyone saw that, didn't they? <laughs> everybody saw that. I guess it's not, it's not the kind of number you sing with the mint still in your mouth, I guess. Of course. <laughs> Dispose of it early on. <laughs> so tell me, what, what, what have you been working on today? Uh, today we were doing um, the first picture, which is Act 1, Scene 1 with the chorus, um, and the third picture, which is the gambling scene. Right. And they are the two big chorus numbers. Now, you, you use the word picture. Mm -hmm. So this gives a little bit of a clue as yes. to what the concept of the staging is. Uh, the yes. Peter Convitchny's staging, which um, is being played without an interval. Yes. With a reputed running time of under two hours. This is true. So, <laughs> first question, what's been cut? Um, hopefully that awful ballet from uh, the gambling scene, or is that still in there? Yes, that is cut. Um, to go back to your first question, yeah. that which ties into this, um, we're going by pictures, uh, meaning scenes, rather than acts, since there is no interval. Um, so, the, there are four pictures. Uh, the first, second are... Um, the, the, the first picture is the whole first act. The second picture is the first half of the second act. The third picture is the second half of the second act. And then the fourth picture is act three. Um, there are only actually a few things cut. Um, standard cuts, like one verse of Aforce Louis in the, in the aria, um, which is pretty standard. Um, the baritone cabaletta is cut, which is normal. Um, things like that. But um, the choruses are cut at the beginning of the gambling scene, so that's gone. And there are little lines here and there that don't really fit with the production, so they're cut as well. Mm. Um, but for the most part, it's all there, and my role is pretty much all intact. Mm. So. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that we refer to all these things in the Italian because it's so hard to refer to them in English? It's true. Um, and, and every time, even writing a review, I find it's really difficult. Sometimes you want to identify an aria, and the translation sounds so usually so naff in print yeah. that you, and doesn't really reflect what people know about that aria and exactly. how they connect with it. Um, um, I mean, singing, you've sung the role before, haven't yes. you? Um, how many times, just once? Or? I did one production in Hong Kong um, before this, and that was my first one. And I have two more this season. So I have four total this season and one already for next season. So um, it's becoming a role that is a staple in my repertoire. <laughs> mm. and, and this, the only one in English, presumably? Yes. Um, how tricky is that when you've learned the role in Italian? It's difficult, not so much um, for linguistic reasons, because it is, you know, my language. Um, although the British English is slightly different than the way we would say things in America. So that, that was sort of a, a change, but, um, but other English than that... And English translations also are, um, can be very arch, it's the right. word I use, you know. Exactly. I mean, you know, we don't, words we don't use in conversational English that appear well, in opera libretti. And the, the Italian is the same way. Um, sempre libera de gio is, de gio is not used in, in Italian nowadays. That's an old, old word. So it's, it's still okay that there are old words in the English, but it takes some getting used to, I think, for English speakers. Mm. Um, but the thing that's difficult is singing in English because 
the Verdi said it so perfectly in Italian vocally, and it's such a vocally demanding role that to really keep it um, as solid vocally with the English takes a lot of getting used to. But luckily, Eno has quite a long rehearsal process, so yes. it gives me time to. That, that helps. I, I mean, um, it's a contemporary setting of the piece, I, I gather, yes. which is what Verdi and his librettists always wanted, yes. didn't they? It was, it, was the, it was the powers that be that insisted that there was some distance put between um, the time when it was performed and the, the period it was set, because it was so shocking yes. at the time. The That's idea true. of... Um, and I guess it's still shocking, the idea of the sex worker or the... whatever term you want to use for a woman, an uh, escort, yeah, I mean, um, if I may be so blunt, uh, Per Convigny has a really amazing saying that always resonates with me, and he says, it says something about Verdi that the whore gets the uh, most beautiful music in the show. He doesn't care about society. He doesn't care about um, the fact that, that these people have money and, and that the Baron supplies her with money, so he must be greater than her. He doesn't think that, and in fact, he had a similar affair in his own life um, that really made him um, connect personally with this libretto and this piece, which is why the music is so incredibly personal. Um, but I do think that's true. I think that Verdi kind of wanted to show the disparity between the people who are supposed to be good because they have the money, they're a higher class, but they're completely broken. Yeah. And Violetta is a real human being and a real person, but she is just brushed up like she's, like she's worthless. Mm. And yes. I love that. Yes, double standards as well. The production highlights this, yeah. That's, that's, that's really good. And I suppose um, there's also something else in, in, the, in the drama, and that is that in every, in society still, uh, families uh, disapprove of who their loved one is going to marry or yes. the prospects. And, uh, I mean, whether, whether or not it's something as dramatic as being a, a hooker, um, the fact remains that people still interfere mm -hmm. in, in two people's very personal relationship. And, um, yeah, the story is timeless, and I think when it is modernized, it completely works and doesn't change the crux of the piece. It's not like taking Tosca out of Rome, which doesn't work. But, you know, you can, you can kind of um, put this piece in any period as long as the interpersonal relationships um, keep their integrity in the way that Verdi intended. I, I think that the piece can kind of work in many ways. Do you, does he specify the, the illness? Because um, I know that it's perfectly feasible still that she, she might develop tuberculosis, but of course it's curable now. Yeah. Um, so is it, I've seen productions which don't specify what she has mm -hmm. in terms of what is, what is he doing in that respect? Well, um, my physical gestures are very similar to what tuberculosis would be, but I'm kind of, because it is modern, sort of taking it as maybe like a walking pneumonia type thing, um, something like that. But I, I think the symptoms are still similar, the coughing, the, you know, maybe she sees blood in, in, her, in her hand after she coughs kind of thing. So, yeah, it could mm -hmm. be a multitude of things. How do you and, and Peter Konvichny see her as a character? Well, um, I alluded to it earlier, but his production um, revolves around, and this is why he wanted to make a, a cinematic production without interval, around Violetta starting as the only human, he calls it, the only human in the piece. And everyone else is just kind of in this broken society and really is just not in touch with their humanism. They're like, it, it's almost like they are, you know, robots just without, without a soul. And as the piece goes on, more people develop this. But um, he really kind of, that's how he sees her, that um, he loves the, the contradiction between her lifestyle and who she really is as a person. And that is 
I think that's brought out in any good production, but it's really highlighted in this production. Mm. And Alfredo, I mean, you know, he's, um, I mean, madly in love with her, but there, there is this, this moment in the, in the gambling scene mm -hmm. um, where, because she is being f true to the wishes of the father and trying to distance herself from him and saying she doesn't love him, where he kind of loses it yeah. um, and treats her appallingly. Um, God, men are easily taken in, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, well, actually, Jermall says that to me in our duet. <laughs> so, it's true. <laughs> I mean, these things really are timeless. And uh, So, I mean, is, is it a, uh, what kind of a, is it a very um, physical staging? Is it a very... Incredibly. <laughs> Incredibly. Okay. Um, the, the beginning, not so much for me, but once I hit Semper Libera, once I hit the aria to the end of the opera, it's incredibly physical. Um, and another interesting point is that he, um, Convicini wants the, the love between Violetta and Alfredo to be unequal because he believes that Alfredo is like this, this naive boy who hasn't really been through a lot in his life and hasn't kind of been through the hard times that she has. So he, his love is just not as profound. He thinks he's that in love with her, but he can't possibly be that, that person. When she says, love me Alfredo, you know, during the, um, mm. the famous ama mi Alfredo line, he, he doesn't even see that, that she's lying to him. And if he really understood the kind of love that she felt for him, he would know that. And, you know, Herr Kombichny has really picked up on these, these things that I kind of never really saw as deeply. And I really, really like these touches. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Because I, it's just what I was saying a moment ago about yeah. how, how, as a man, does he not see it? And how, do, how, how does he react so appallingly? Yeah. To, to someone that he is so passionately in love with. Um, it just suggests that he exists on a slightly more superficial level. Exactly. Um, and that's the crux of the, the, our piece, our version. Yes. Yeah. But I suppose the light is seen at the end when it's too late mm -hmm. by all parties concerned, which is why the tragedy is so intense. Exactly. That's why it's a true tragedy, because these people do kind of grow as people and become more human, but by the time they do, it's too late. Now, does it sit well in your voice, Corinne? I mean, I, you graduated from the Philadelphia School of, um, am I right, of um, Vocal Arts? Yes, the um, Academy, the Academy of, Vocal of Vocal Arts. Um, and you've accumulated a clutch of, of prizes over the years. Um, um, was it always, when you started to sing, was it always opera that, that, that you had your sights set on, or were you interested in other kinds of singing? I was. I didn't grow up with classical music or opera. Um, my father is an amateur rock musician. He's a lawyer, but does that on the side. Okay. And I, I grew up with lots of music, and I was in choir all through school. But um, I knew I wanted to pursue music, but I didn't know in what capacity. So I started taking voice lessons, because in college in the States, you have to go to school for classical music. Yeah. So um, I started as a mezzo-soprano, and um, singing Cherubino and things like this. Interesting. And um, my, my voice wasn't really blooming in that area and and also I just didn't feel completely fulfilled and then finally um, a mentor kind of showed me the way and said maybe you should sing this stuff and and mm -hmm. showed me La Boheme and Carmen and these these arias and then I said oh I think this is more me um, and that's when I really fell in love with opera because I found my, my actual repertoire. It's interesting how a teacher or a mentor mm -hmm. can completely change the course of your your life, your your singing life. I mean, it's it's, true. It, and so many voices don't find their true place. Yeah. Um, because they're badly advised. Um, yeah, and, there's a And lot you're of singing <laughs> soprano repertoire, lyric soprano repertoire with bells on. Yeah. I mean, this is the bel canto 
pretty much that mm-hmm. kind of the romantic end of the bel canto rather yes far. it is um and uh, so you could have been a rock chick at some point <laughs> yeah almost did almost went down that road oh, you, your dad probably wishes you were <laughs> well he loves what i'm doing and honestly i uh, i truly believe i i belong in the opera world and i think having a life before opera really gave me a lot to bring to it and considering that the characters i play all kind of have to be hard on the sleeve it really requires a certain depth and a certain ex- level of experience um, that I finally feel like I'm, <laughs> I've lived enough to bring something to the table. Mm. I've looked at some of the repertoire you, you, you sing, interesting things like Anne True Love in mm-hmm. The Rake's Progress, and, um, um, and uh, I can see you as Anne True Love in The Rake's Progress. <laughs> uh, I mean, because f- physicality has become so important in opera these days, yeah. hasn't it? From the days when I, as a boy, went to see opera, it was a very different game where people did just park and bark, as <laughs> exactly. the Americans say. Yes. Um, and uh, you can kind of forgive that for truly, the truly great voices of mm-hmm. our time. Um, but it no longer has its place because opera is theatre. Yes. And what the sort of productions that ENO are fielding these days, uh, the emphasis is very much on how exciting it is as theatre and whether or not it's going to attract um, people who've never experienced opera before and give them a totally different insight into it, which yes. I think is really exciting. Yeah, I think that's all true. Um, I've, because I'm petite, I've kind of gone into the consumptive roles, if you will, or the kind of tragic heroines because um, I don't necessarily have the stateliness of a Donna Anna or a, one of those, but maybe Mimi or Violetta or, or Michaela or Anne True Love. They fit my voice and they also fit my size and my temperament. and. I think if there's a, a Brunhilde voice out there, no one expects that person to be my size because yeah. to have a voice yeah. of that breadth is just not possible. Yeah. Um, but for for my repertoire, I think it's it's definitely necessary to, to look the part, to look like as if you could have tuberculosis. It really does help from an audience point of view, but um, again, you have to be the right singer for the role. I mean, yes, first and I've, foremost, I've absolutely. seen awful casting of, of people who, you know, look great, but actually can't quite deliver what the role requires. Um, it's a big house, the Coliseum, isn't it? Yes. Have you, you move in there when next week, is it? Yeah, and the next week. And uh, so have you, have you been and seen anything uh, uh, since you've been here there? Or um, have you stood on the stage and actually sung into the auditorium yet? Yes, I actually sang my audition for ENO on the stage. Okay. Um, and I got to sing four arias in that audition. So I sang a lot on the stage. And it was I actually loved the acoustic. Granted, it was an empty house with no orchestra. Um, but we have plenty of rehearsals in there, so I think I'll be okay. Yeah. You know, this theatre was originally used for musicals. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, uh, in the days when they weren't mic'd at all, can you imagine? Um, no. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the London first London premiere of Guys and Dolls was at the Coliseum. Wow. So it's, it's got a great history of being a musical theatre house, but only in latterly an opera house. Wow. So quite an interesting background. It is an interesting there. history. Um, and um, so um, technically, um, do you feel, you feel at home in the role of Violetta? Clearly, if you're going to sing it again and again and again. I mean, John McMurray, presumably, at your audition... Um, who was at the audition? Ed Gardner? Uh, John Barry and John McMurray were there. Yes. Um, and uh, Martin Fitzpatrick played my audition as well. Um, yeah, it, it really does fit like a glove. Um, the first act is difficult for me, but um, 
contemporary libra is it's difficult I mean, for most people the whole opera is um, in that exactly and i think it you know if you have someone like Natalie to say singing Traviata, I mean, act one will be a breeze for her, but maybe not the other acts. And there's always going to be a part that's more difficult. And for me, it's, it's act one. But um, I've sung it so much and really worked it into my voice. And um, my voice teacher is Diana Soviero, who sang this role many times. Um, and she really gave me some, some tips to say, okay, in a big stage, this is what you need to do to make this heard. Or this is how to make your coloratura faster, and um, mm. and that's really helped me build the role into my voice. Because it's all about um, it's all about how the delivery works rather than the size of the voice always. Yes. Um, and 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 whether the coloratura means anything. Exactly. And in this production, it surely does. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> and is he is he really working in that kind of detail? So yes. saying, you know, what does this this bit of decoration, what does it actually convey emotionally? He has an incredible understanding of the music. I think I read online that his father was either uh, a conductor or part of an orchestra. He was, no, he was a conductor, conductor. quite a famous one. Yes, yes. Um, so I, I think he was raised with uh, this type of knowledge. He actually said in rehearsal the other day, let's start at the Neapolitan sixth chord. And I, I thought, oh my God, I haven't thought about a Neapolitan sixth chord since theory class. But he knew, he knew this, yeah. and um, he knows the music so well. He knows what instrument is playing at what point, and it's, it's brilliant. Are we getting a, um, a kind of, well, you might call it a superfluous, i.e. flat at the end of Libra, Libra? Well, I did that in Hong Kong, but because there's no interval, uh, I'm finding it wise to not. I think that's very wise, but also I think it would, um, it becomes then a showpiece, doesn't it? Exactly. I've struggled with this because the, the public likes hearing it, mm. but also um, for my type of voice and also my interpretation of the character, I don't think it's necessary or even maybe the best choice. Mm. Um, but I have done the aria a lot in competition, and in that context, of course, I've just you know kind of pulled out all stops and, and done anything that I yeah. could. But um, in the context of the show, I actually prefer it not. I, I don't think it's Lucia. I don't think that it's that type of expression. I think mm. it... Um, she's she's kind of more grounded and, and stating her values at this point. So I, I don't think that the E flat is, is necessary. These these top notes can sometimes be. I mean, they're sometimes optional, but they can be deceptive, misleading, um, and they can change the complexion of what we're actually seeing. Yes. And usually, we. I mean, at the Royal Opera House, you'll have an interval after mm -hmm. um, Sempre Libra. Exactly. Um, I, I mean, they always have too many intervals anyway, but uh, <laughs> yeah. there'll be an interval and there may even be a curtain call if it's a big diva. Yeah, exactly. Um, and when I started going to opera, there were always curtain calls in yes. opera. In fact, amusingly, Birgit Nilsson, I saw her sing Torendot oh, at the, the opera house. Amazing. She took a curtain call at the end of Act One. She hasn't sung a note. <laughs> I mean, isn't that fabulous? I love it. That, that, that is just, fabulous. That just doesn't doesn't happen anymore. But, that is um, fabulous. No, I think that's that that's um, that's exciting. But I mean, also um, uh, uh, one of our singers. I don't know if you know Claire Rutter, a British singer. Yes. She sings a lot of the bel canto repertoire. And um, Claire uh, did Aida for you know, and um, the first time round, um, she wanted to sing a, a high. E flat at the end of the triumphal scene, which of course has only ever been done, I think, by that famous pirate recording of Callas. Yes. Um, and the conductor said, "No, no, no, it's 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 vulgar. It's not, you know." 
But when they revived it, I happened to be in the auditorium and I couldn't believe my ears because she actually did it. Wow. Um, and so it can have that kind of visceral thrill, but it does become something else, mm-hmm. I think. I agree. Operas, there is that danger in opera. So where are we, um, where next? Um, I mean, this is a big, a big moment for you, Corinne. Yes, it it's is. It's a big house, a big, important city, um, a production that... Um, I'm really keenly anticipating because it does sound as though, you know, and it, I think that the other thing about doing something in this concentrated way is that the audience has no opportunity then to kind of, you know, they are focused completely. Yes, I agree. Um, and I'm always torn between The Age of the Diva, which is just so exciting and interesting of Tabaldi and Kalas, but also kind of now the age of like real theater in, in the sense, I mean, Kalas was obviously a true actress, but it was still in the context of, but I am a diva and I will bow here or I will, you know, turn to the audience and sing right to them kind of thing. But now it is really, um, and especially in productions like this and with up and coming young singers about true theater. And I'm really, really excited to be part of a production that is such a theatrical um, show showcase. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not... The singing is really an expression of the theater and not the other way around. And I really, I'm enjoying that because it's a change from, from a lot of things mm. I've done. Mm. And obviously your voice is developing all the time, but mm. um, I mean, it's clear the definition of your repertoire is, is quite clear at the moment, but um, where, where are your sights at the moment? What roles are you now learning or thinking of learning? Um, what does that well, say about where you're going to go? My, my main staples probably for the next few years are um, Michaela and Carmen, Mimi and La Boheme, and Violetta. Mm-hmm. Um, I might be trying a Faust in an upcoming season, um, so that's, that's a possibility. Um, also Desdemona and Otello are things that I've, I've looked at, but I'm, I'm kind of pacing it, and um, at least for the next two seasons I won't be singing them because I already have my schedule. Yeah, uh, in a future good. season I have Magda and La Rondine coming up. Um, that would work. And that fits very well. Um, the, the kind of um, more lyric Puccini is really where I like to sit, like yes. Liu, Magda, Mimi, things like this. So, um, yes, and I would love to do Liu. That's, uh, and Manon, Manon Masne yes. as well. Yes, well, those, those are all I would, I would have thought the Faust, uh, the Margarita and, um, and Desdemona are two uh, slightly weightier things. I think uh, everybody thinks the love duet in... in uh, in Otello, but mm-hmm. um, uh, they they always forget about Act Three. Yeah, you know that is really a hell of a thing. It is, it? and similarly with Faust, still being there for the trio at the end. Yes, it? exactly. So, I, but I, the thing I think about Otello is that um, it has this element of um, of this ethereal nature, and the character has a has that same. Um, Temperament in the sense that it can really help keep the voice lined up. It's not one of the, the screamier Verdi roles. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, I, can we expect further tweets? I'm now following you. So oh, good. So uh, uh, I thought, well, it's the least I could do. Since. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yes, I, uh, I love to tweet about what's going on because I really think the public should not only see the final product, but the, the process is... is most of where the fun happens and the excitement. Yes. So I would love to, to share that with the public. Yes, and I think that's that's a whole new world out there for, uh, these days. I mean, it, it's uh, it's extraordinary how how it's taken off, and particularly Twitter. Yes. Um, where there's there's a there's a dialogue going on in the community, which yes. I think is on the whole pretty healthy. 
It's great. I've actually, especially in the London Twitter scene, I've met a few people um, that I've kept in touch with and actually met one of my followers uh, and fans, and we've gone out to dinner and went to a show at Whitmore Hall uh, when I got here. So it's lovely. I've made some, made some great contacts that's here. That's excellent. Yeah. That's great. Well, I, I really wish you well with it, and we're all excited to see it. And uh, um, great. Great. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Nice meeting you.